happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 219 for May 12th, 2021. My name is Jason Eifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, Montana State Virtual School, located on the beautiful University of Montana campus right here in fabulous Missoula, Montana. And joining me tonight, as always, good evening, Dr. West Fryer. How are you tonight, sir? Good evening, Jason. I am well, and I am so sorry to everybody. I know there's just lots and lots of you out there that were waiting with bated breath for the MP3 version of our show, and this is like the first week ever I have not actually published the show. So subscribe on YouTube, ladies and gentlemen. No, we'll get we'll get both of those up there. But um, I am here in Oklahoma City, where we normally have an average of 20 tornadoes in the month of May. We've had two, and they've both been F1. So odd. It felt like 40 mid 40s this morning, which is also pretty weird for us. But I am the technology integration and innovation specialist at the Cassidy School, where I remain a recovering technology director and a recovering Spanish teacher, (laughs) a recovering emergency Spanish teacher, but a very joy-filled media literacy teacher with fifth and sixth grade kids and about nine days left of classes with students. So kids will... Our last day of class is May 26th, and then I think kids have – our kids have one more day, but it's like a, you know, field day and special schedules things. So has – uh are you guys – you guys are probably still a little cool up north. Yeah, we're uh, probably going to get our first 90-degree day. Uh, the, the, the forecast keeps kind of changing, but uh, I think early next week we may see 90 on Monday. But right now it's uh, – lows are in the upper 30s, lower 40s, and highs – are in mid sixties to mid seventies, so that's that's pretty typical May weather for Montana. Uh, we also get a, a bit of rain this month too, although uh, Missoula, Western Montana, keeps getting a little wetter every year. It's not snow, which is what we really need is snowpack up in the mountains, but nonetheless, um, decent weather all the same. Absolutely. Well, what are we about to do here tonight, Dr. Neifer? Well, the EdTech Situation Room is a once a week podcast where we take a look at technology headlines and kind of shoot them through the educational prism. And we typically look at both philosophical articles about technology and education, also some maybe more hard practical news about evolutions in technology and education. This week we have stories on Apple, Google, uh, Microsoft. Uh, some hardware uh, uh, news and an interesting article that I'd like to share tonight about RAM in laptops, some connectivity news, uh, a growing element every week, which is security stories and news, some social media stuff, uh, the so-called tech correction, a miscellaneous article, and then, of course, at the end of our show tonight, we will share our Geeks of the Week. Dr. Fryer, where would you like to start tonight? Well... Why don't we start a little bit with some security news? Uh, some Sometimes it's felt like we were going to do the, the tech correction show. We're not going to do the security show. But uh, I did, as I sometimes do, take a listen to the Security Now podcast with Mr. Steve Gibson on the Twit Network. And, oh, my goodness, are, are there ever some crazy things going on? So maybe I'll just start here with this wild one. Um, this is from Bleeping Computer on April 25th, 2021. Emotet malware nukes itself today from all infected computers worldwide. And there's a a pretty big story here. Um, I'll just make the educational connection right away and say part of our responsibility as educators is to not only protect ourselves and our institutions by using secure passwords, which are long, unique, and uh, include lots of special characters, but also turning on the multi-factor authentication, we need to help educate our students and our families uh, about that as well. Because in the face of ransomware and, and cyber attack and these different things that we're seeing, um, as individuals, it, it is rather limited to, to like, what can we do? And that is definitely a concrete thing we can do is to try to secure our accounts and follow the very wonderful example of Dr. Neifer, who has, has audited his accounts and used the tools that are now available to, you know, make sure that you change any passwords that are on the dark web and your weak passwords, et cetera. So <clears throat> the long story short, uh, for seven years, there's been this enormous spam botnet which this starts to talk sound like science fiction, but these are computers that have been taken over by 
malware actors, I mean, malware is the, is the software that does bad things. So these are bad actors, whether it's nation state, whether it's cyber criminal or a mix of both. These are basically infected machines that can do the bidding of their masters and they can launch cyber attacks. And so there's been this massive, massive um, botnet and what the, um, I guess, defensive and offensive groups, I don't even know exactly, you know, who all was involved in coordinating it. Germany's federal police agency uh, was involved. I'm, I would feel pretty confident the United States was as well. They took action to basically take over these computers and not only shut down the botnet, but then code was written that went out to all of the computers, which were the zombie ones and, and, and deleted that code or even shut down the machines. I didn't get deep enough into it, but it's this really, really sophisticated counter cyber operation, um, which sounds positive as far as like, here's some good news, Amidst a lot of other bad news. And I had not heard anything about this at all until I was listening to Security Now. So what's the implication? Well, as I said, there's a security implication uh, for us as educators personally and with students. Uh, we've also got to help kids develop computational thinking skills. The skills of being able to use code, understand code, and also, I would add, help inform policy decisions that are being made and will be made in our country regarding the internet and cyber, all of these things, really, really important. And so we need to talk about those things, help educate kids about those things and help students develop skills and, and even motivation, I think, to try to study and prepare themselves for careers that are needed because we need folks to help protect us. What do you think, Dr. Neifer? Have you, did any of your machines suddenly shut down because they've been compromised by the Emonet? Uh, sadly, no Emonet for me. Emotet, although, Emotet, sorry. Uh, uh, but uh, what I would say is that, uh, like many other schools were, um, and part of it is heightened awareness for sure, but, you know, we get a series of emails pretty regularly uh, that are either phishing attacks or are malware attacks. And the bottom line is, is that, like, I... They, they get increasingly nuanced as the days, weeks, and years uh, go on. And although I have never personally fallen to one, I have gotten at least enough to open a click before to, to see what's going on. Um, and organizations I work with uh, kind of on the side of my day job, uh, everything from uh, social engineering attacks via email to uh, uh, real malware attached to email, it's a reality of living in 2021. And I'll add the the link to this Security Now podcast in case somebody wants to check that out. One of the most important things they said in that was that phishing attacks, PH, phishing attacks, were the number one successful threat vector for the, the, the for malware overall and this Emotet zombie botnet, you know. Why are we seeing these things proliferate? It's because they're working and people are clicking on them and they're infecting machines. And in some cases, you're, you're not necessarily going to know things have happened. In other cases, you know, they, they can, they can zap money out of your bank account and send it to an yeah. offshore account. And, and these, these things are happening. So, um, yeah, the more, the closer that you are to the security world, I, I have relinquished, thankfully, my Google admin rights at our school. And I'm very happy actually to have stepped aside from that. But the closer you get to <clears throat> the admin IT side of technology, if you've been there recently at all, you have a much heightened awareness of how hostile the computing environment is and how dangerous it is out there, folks. Be safe out there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and tell your friends and family. That's the other piece of this that I think is super important. And, um, my parents are both pretty tech savvy. My mom was actually one of the first people to use computerized accounting in the early 1980s. And so she's been around for a while. She's, uh, seen computers come and go and she would tell you she's not very tech savvy, but that's, that's absolutely not true. But I do feel the need to about every two or three months, especially when I hear something novel or new that's happening in social engineering attacks. Um, I've, I've read some disturbing things lately about, uh, uh, attempts at scam phone calls that really prey on people, uh, use, utilizing, you know, uh, psych psychological techniques, uh, uh, 
threatening violence in, in some cases over the phone. And I have that conversation with my parents and my sister and my nieces and my wife and uh, my in-laws. And, you know, they're all pretty savvy folks, but I still think it's worth it to, you know, to, to let people know that they just need to be on their guard. And I would much rather them, you know, hang up the phone on a legitimate call from, uh, uh, you know, credit card company or a vendor or a utility company than fall to a scam. Like, I think it's really, uh, uh, appropriate to keep your guard up uh, to the nth degree in, in 2021. I'll pick up just a couple more related articles and then maybe we can move on to something else. This is a cyber scoop article um, that is uh, saying this was from April 27th, 2021 ransomware demands up by 43% so far in 2021. Uh, and of course, ransomware is what has affected gas prices in a lot of the country right now. So CNET reported today, gas prices climbing Past three dollars a gallon amidst uh, pipeline cyber attack, the Colonial pipeline was attacked. And even though <coughs> we've got all kinds of supply and, and it's not imminent, it's a little. They said it's a little bit like toilet paper and some other things that with the COVID, where oh people, well ammunition too. There's such a run that it it is it has created scarcity, and so that's happening right now with gas in a lot of parts of the country. Um, but on the ransomware note, um, Wired had a great article on April 23rd titled "Apple's Ransomware Mess Is the Future of Online Extortion." I'm very tempted to actually make a little puppet video. I was trying to explain to my fifth graders what extortion was in ransomware. And I was, you know, you got a really nice place here. I'd hate to see if something happened to this place. You know, we did a little uh, role play. What's happened to Apple computer is that hackers have obtained evidently blueprints and information about forthcoming products and typical ransomware attacks are going to involve locking up a computer system and then saying, hey, you've got to pay us X amount of money to unlock your files and your systems so that you can operate again. Well, with Apple, and this is evidently happening with other really large profile um, uh, groups, I mean, the first thing these folks want to do is establish a dialogue. And so they're asking a huge amount, like $50 million dollars. But as then as, as soon as the dialogue is initiated to, for the for the company to talk to them, you know, then it's reduced and and then it, you know it's negotiated further. But it's not just about data being locked up; it's also the threatened leak of information. Oh, I'd hate it if uh, the world found out about the new diagram for the new iPad Pro. And so it's not clear exactly what Apple has done, but this idea of of leaking and dumping information and harming the company through extortion, you know, I think back to the mid early nineties, uh, the spouse, the husband of my, um, my, one of my advisors on my dissertation committee had, had made a very prescient and sort of future savvy prediction. And he said that the more people that get on the internet, the more crime there's going to be on the internet. And he's was absolutely right, you know? And so there's so much money now that, that people are being able to get in, in different kinds of campaigns and different sorts of things. It, it, it's a wild West. And so I thought it was pretty remarkable. I almost moved this under the Apple category, but it is a security article, but it is really crazy the way that hacks and extortion schemes to include ransomware. And I mean, wasn't it, well, Oklahoma city public schools, I think two years ago, not last year with the pandemic, but a year before, right around this time in May, you know, schools wrapping up, grades are going in. Oh, guess what? The whole information system for the district of like 45, 49,000, whatever students, you know, ransomware. And I never officially heard how that got resolved. So, and I think those, but we've had some things like that in Montana as well. Haven't we had, uh, some threatening yeah. things happen with. Yeah, a couple of schools in the northwest part of the state a couple of years ago, uh, there was a, a few were hacked into and it was a, a th you know, th they threatened uh, by a text message, I believe, uh, school board members and administrators, they would release personal information to students out in the open. And, you know, the, uh, uh, it is a real risk for schools. I mean, I, I, I think about this in context of, 
um, you know, Apple and if, if their schematics, et cetera, were, were, were stolen, I would imagine they'd probably prefer just to release the information than pay $50 million to, uh, you know, bad actors. In fact, that would be my guess is that if, if this is true and, and also if, if, if the full story is what that, that the journalist is reporting, you know, it would seem like, you know, I know Apple likes to keep its privacy, uh, but they would rather, you know, they'd rather release the information publicly or just deny it existed. And even if later on, because that's happened before, too, with Apple leaks, is that very accurate information is leaked before and they deny it, deny it, deny it, deny it and end up being correct. And they're like, oops, oh, well. Um, but it's scary. And it's it's one thing if it's industrial espionage, like would be with something like an Apple. It would be a, a, a very scary and disconcerting if it happened with private student data, even relatively low value private student data. You know, like your grade in third period French, it's still your private data, and that's being used to scare people and drive up cost of those ransoms. If you happen to have access to HBO or HBO Max, the perfect weapon is a documentary of a book by Peter Singer, and I was able to watch that, and it just really traces how this thing has has evolved. And th- and I haven't finished the Security Now podcast episode yet, but it is so enlightening in terms of how these things have evolved and changed. And as we look at, you know, new Chromebooks for our kids next year, and we're talking about, you know, on-device filtering or not, or, you know, what we're going to do, man, the internet just, we, you think you know the internet. You've grown up with the internet. You don't know the internet. You know, I mean, we do, but it's, it just continues to morph and change and evolve and in the case of cyber and, and all this, um, it's important to recognize ways that it's changed and, and ways that we need to, you know, change our behavior. Do you want to pick up that recode article about protecting yourself? Actually, Jason, is that what you put in? Yeah, it, it is. And uh, we've mentioned this here in the past, but this was a really great explanation of why. But uh, Sarah Morrison writes in Recode on May 6th that um, if you are utilizing text messaging for two-factor authentication, um, you should move towards some kind of authentication app like the Google Authenticator. Uh, my preference personally um, is uh, Authy is a two-factor authentication uh, app. Microsoft's getting into this business. Um, Apple is, is moving into this business. There's a lot of interesting ways to do this, but uh, especially if someone is specifically targeting you, and you can imagine for a moment, you may think to yourself, who would target me, right? Well, if you're a curriculum administrator in a school district, if you're an IT director in a school district and someone was targeting your district to cause shenanigans, to try to up a ransom, for example, maybe hacking into your cell phone isn't uh, that uh, uh, far of a, a far cry of a situation or a scenario, even if you're not, if you don't have nuclear launch code sitting in your district internet, but moving towards a two-factor authentication a scheme um, is great, but SMS-based two-factor authentication isn't as secure as other methods, and you may want to consider certainly heading in that particular direction. And Recode talks about why uh, the specific risk to cell phones and SMS messaging, and then gives you some alternatives and, and some things to think about if you decide to move towards an app. And many password managers now have the option of generating a security code like that. And so you can, you know, do that within your password manager, perhaps. So I, I do like Authy as well. And it's handy to have it on the watch. Do you have yours on the watch, Jason? I, I do. I have it on the watch. Um, I have it installed or I have the, uh, the iOS app installed on my MacBook, which is super great. Um, and uh, that's one of the things I miss a little bit about. Uh, the Android Wear universe was that, or where, where, no, Wear OS is the, uh, I, I mix them all up. The Android Watch, uh, uh, operating system, um, uh, I could, I could approve third, or, or, uh, two factor authentications from, from the watch itself, like just one button and approve, and that was super cool. I missed that a little bit from the Google realm. Uh, there's one Google article I want to throw into security because it relates to this, um, uh, this article, the headline sounds a, a little more uh, hardcore than the article states, but Google is so convinced about the necessity of two-factor authentication, they're going to start switching to it as a default, um, especially in personal accounts when possible. Uh, there's a lot of, of configuration pieces here. So, for example, I think two-factor authentication would be a good thing to offer students, but forcing students on two-factor uh, authentication, uh, if you in your district or anything like uh, uh, my program, forgotten passwords is a real issue for a lot of kids. 
Fidos are not really plugging into that yet, and biometrics isn't with us yet to be able to replace passwords with that. And I deal with quite a bit of lost password emails uh, as part of my day job uh, running a Montana State Virtual School uh, with our team at the University of Montana. But the bottom line is that if you can push adults in that direction, um, especially ones that have access to student data, again, it's relatively low value data, right? Your third period French grade really isn't all that valuable, but it would really you know, uh, 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 wreak havoc, I think, on a district if random pieces of personal information, uh, started getting released in order to, again, uh, uh, push, uh, uh, some kind of ransom notice. And your email is oftentimes the keys to the kingdom, right? So yep. if someone gets access to that email, they can reset, you know, anything else, and that really opens up. And especially, for adults and for bank accounts and things like that. Peggy, welcome Peggy in our chat room is asking, are you using an authentic authenticator app and not two factor authentication to be clear? Um, authenticator apps are a type of multi-factor or two factor authentication. So instead of using just text message me the code, <clears throat> you have an app that you'll open. Um, and then that app will generate the, the code. So, um, there's all, and I think there's backup codes usually that you can print. And I think it's a very good idea to have multiple ways. Um, I do have a USB, um, security key. Um, <laughs> and, and this is the kind of thing where you also wonder, how much am I disclosing about myself if I'm making myself a, you know, threat target? Um, it's, it would be possible for me to make, like let's let's say I was involved in politics and I was definitely a you know somebody that was going to be targeted. I would turn off all the other ways of authenticating if I wanted to be as secure as possible, and then this security key uh, would be the way that I would I would se secure that. Um, but the article Jason's giving, I've I've read that other places, and it's I'll have to check that out because it sounds like this is a very good explication of it. Yes, you know, it, better than nothing is kind of how we've looked at it. But we've been this is like our fourth year of having required two factor authentication at our school for all our teachers, and we were on the leading edge of that. And I feel really good about you know encouraging that. And anyway, it's something that we've needed to do as a school. It's something we need to do as individuals. So text messaging is. Still better than nothing than not having two factor on at all. But given that apps <clears throat> and, um, you know, uh, the, uh, other things like, like password managers can generate those codes, it's a better and more secure option to look that way and not to, not to think that, oh gosh, I have to, you know, I have to be running for some national political office in order to be a target. You don't, you know, the, you don't. the, the more uh, that, that, that bad actors develop code that allows them to attack at scale and to automate these kinds of attacks, the more that everyday citizens are going to continue to get these calls and that, and, and emails and messages and, and phishing attacks, right? And that was right. interesting. You mentioned that about robocalls because part of this too is like, why is my phone now almost useless for numbers that I don't have in my address book? Well, it's because of social engineering and, and these kinds of bad actors. And unfortunately, um, there are, it's a continual game of cat and mouse as far as tech companies and the folks that we pay for services like our phones, you know, are trying to, to counter them, but it's, it's countermeasure upon countermeasure. And, and the bad guys are always trying to find more ways to get in, get, get onto our devices. Tim right. Cook, I think said in a recent interview, you know, most of us, we have more information, private information on our phone than we might in our house, you know, so that if someone is able to compromise yep. that, then they talk about keys to the kingdom. I mean, they, they can really do, do a lot. So, right. Well, and I guarantee you, I don't care who you are in context of a school, you probably have emails that you wouldn't want to release, release publicly, right? I mean, it would take someone, you know, probably more time than it's worth in some cases to go through your backlog of emails to find something that's embarrassing to release. But I guarantee there's something in your email you don't want there and uh, that, that you wouldn't want publicly released because we, we have a perception of privacy in email that's probably not warranted based on, 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 on how that technology leaves a footprint. Um, you know, I, I I can't imagine that that many people uh, 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 wouldn't have something embarrassing uh, somewhere in their email. And and just a couple more thoughts, and then we can like move on to another topic. Um, <laughs> back to that Emotet botnet. 
that particular piece of malware was so efficient at basically once it was on your device and your network, it would spread laterally that they literally had to try and figure out a way to simultaneously kill every instance of it. Because if only one still lived, then it would live on. And the fact is most of us on our school networks, if our networks are of any size and we haven't just moved everything off to the cloud, there is a very high possibility that we have malware that is on our networks. And, and this is also why it's important to reduce your threat target on your back uh, with admin credentials, right? You want to make sure your credentials are secure, the, the, the minimum number of people, and you want to have redundancy and backup, but you don't, you don't need any extra people having any more rights on your network than possible. Because again, to think about what Jason was just saying about email, if you're a Google school, everybody who is a Google admin at the top level has access to the Google Vault which in most districts is going to have archived email of every single employee that has ever worked for your organization for five years. And they're going to have the ability to go into that, to search for anything, to export anything. I mean, it's kind of a terrifying capability. Um, and, and it's important for us to know, again, just as users, that, yes, these things are saved and archived. But as we're finding out with different kinds of hacks, I mean, once something is digitized, it is hackable. And so this is not a show to try to scare everyone, but <laughs> it is a show to try to talk about, you know, the realities of technology and how they intersect with us in school and in our lives. And so important to be taking precautions. And it's just also the, the continuing story of how, you know, the, the threats that we face online are more and more serious. And, and this means that we need to do things like look at secure operating systems and what kinds of computers are we running at school and how are we making sure that they're patched and they're updated. We had that conversation today uh, where an administrator was asking us about Chrome and, and said, yeah, I mean, all the updates are, are, are pushed out. You know, he was asking if, uh, if a kid hadn't opened up their Chromebook in a few months and just open up, is it, is it corrupt or not corrupt, but is it, uh, you know, potentially hazardous. And it's like, well, it's going to, it's going to get an update because that's how Chrome works. And that's one of the, the beauties of it. And modern operating systems are a far cry from our old, old operating systems that would not do that on their own or be forced to do that. Absolutely. All right. Well, what else do you want to talk about tonight? Yeah. Let's, uh, since we were kind of in Google anyways, let's talk about some Google news. Uh, the next web reported and, and this article didn't have a date on it, but it's been kind of widely reported in the last 72 hours or so. Window or so Microsoft seems to be shelving Windows 10 X, which is their kind of Chrome operating system, uh, uh, alternative. And uh, we've talked about this probably three or four times on the podcast, but Windows 10X was going to be an operating system that you install like Windows. It works on Windows hardware, but it is manageable like a Chromebook. The the, the big, ex, uh, uh, I guess, downfall to it maybe or limitation to it is you could only install apps on the Windows App Store. So it is a lot like Chrome OS in that there's a limitation to the web uh, uh, so in other words, you could use the Microsoft Edge browser, uh, like, you know, Chrome OS allows you to use the Chrome browser, and then you can install universal apps in their app store. So you couldn't install, for example, uh, off-the-shelf software that you would download. It would have to be something in the Windows app store. And my understanding, uh, I've been keeping a decently close eye on this story because I think it's a really interesting move on Microsoft's uh, uh, behalf, but... Um, the uh, they had been working on stability and also uh, new ways to manage those devices to try to give it an edge up in the way that Chrome OS devices are managed. One of the great advantages of the Chrome operating system is that it has such a an evolved and simplistic management system for those devices to where one sign in uh, can allow you to uh, enroll a device in your uh, 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 a mobile device manager that that was located inside the Google admin suite and then manage that device for the 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 lifetime of that device and Microsoft is it seems to be moving away from that and I guess my initial reaction that I would I would share and then Wes I'd like to hear your thoughts um, is that I think this is a mistake on Microsoft's part 
but it's probably not surprising in light of the fact that the Chrome operating system has made so many gains in the last 14 months with market share. And we reported last week that um, most computer manufacturers increased in sales uh, if you compare quarter one to quarter one, 2020 to 2021. That's really not a surprise. But the Chrome operating system uh, devices, uh, 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 massive growth as part of that market. And you're starting to see uh, even more instances of schools uh, in particular, but also enterprises moving towards the web-based Chrome operating system. So as a recovering tech director, sir, and, a cons- and, and, and as a, an institution or a member of an institution that's utilizing some Chrome operating system devices next year, any thoughts about Microsoft calling it quits in this part of the market? Well, I mean, we're going to continue to see this just as we have competition. I'm, I'm honestly glad to see Microsoft competing. We need competitors because competitors are going to make Google and everybody else better. But Microsoft is just not, I mean, they have a bit of an innovator's dilemma, perhaps with, with Windows. Um, because what we really need in this area is a rethinking of operating systems. You know, it's not, it's not just a, a, a another version of Windows and even another version of, of, uh, of Mac OS. Um, so I'm, you know, I love Chrome and I think Google has done so much that is so powerful at so many levels, right? Because they've built this ecosystem that now, you know, this is, this was probably the dream of Google at one point was, you know, we're going to have these free tools and schools are going to use them and we're going to have devices and, you know, they're going to, they're going to love us and they're not going to want to leave us. That that's where we are as a school. And that's where a lot of schools are. So I'm, I think Microsoft should continue to, to work in this area, but it's, it's hard and, and network effects in terms of the, the bigger, the biggest get bigger and it's harder and harder for challengers to, you know, push, push back and, and have market share is certainly, you know, in operation here. So, um, <laughs> you remember when they gave away Windows RT tablets at, at, uh, ST? <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do. Uh, yeah. We laugh. Yeah. I took it home and it became a paperweight, you know, it was like, hey, yeah, you're, you're a child. Do you want to use this? I don't want to use this thing. Give me my iPad. You know, I mean, yeah. So. And I, I did. And I, and in fact, I ended up buying a surface pro generation one that had an Intel chip in Cause I liked the form factor, the right. nice tiny machine. Right. But, um, yeah, the RT tablet was vastly underpowered. And, um, also, you know, uh, it, it involved the, you know, Internet Explorer. So that was the, that was the yeah. in- integrated uh, browser, which, you know, almost no users were, power users were using at that point. Yeah. So. Yeah. Definitely. Okay, a couple other Google articles. Uh, Google I.O. is coming up soon. Um, I believe it's next week, uh, is, is Google I.O. Uh, that's a, that's a, uh, an event that, uh, Dr. Fryer and I aspire to perhaps meet, uh, in California to go hang out at the Google I.O. event sometime and nerd out with all the Google geeks. But, um, I, the reason why I, I focused on this article is because I think, I, I expect actually there to be some big Chrome OS changes that are announced. And there's been some evidence going back to January that something big stuff is coming out this year with, with, with Chrome OS. And there's been a lot of really amazing improvements in the operating system in the last year. But they're talking about obviously Android 12, the next version of Android is, is always announced at, at Google IO. So that will be part of it. Uh, material design, which has been uh, kind of Google's design language uh, since about 2014. Uh, there is some uh, evidence that they're going to be moving towards whatever the next generation. Uh, it's called Material Next is, is, is what uh, uh, journalists have been calling it. Um, maybe some updates to the Google Assistant. Um, Google Duplex, which is a, I guess I don't know how to, what to describe this, but it, it's a, it's an artificial extension of the assistant that will do things like call and get restaurant, uh, uh, reservations for you. So in other words, it's an interface for talking to other people. So when you say things like, I really want you to, uh, you know, give me 7 p.m. Uh, reservations at so and so cafe, uh, it will actually call a human if there's no interface uh, available to do so, uh, no API, no way to do that at the restaurant. Um, and then some enhancements coming with, uh, uh, artificial intelligence in Google Lens. But there was, uh, some evidence here that uh, Wear OS might get some additional support. 
the lack of a, a viable uh, watch uh, on the Android side is part of the reason why I left the Android universe and moved, uh, moved back to uh, Mother Apple because the the Apple Watch is just so far advanced uh, to the software available on, on on Android watches. And then there was a light reference to maybe Chromebooks uh, having some kind of large, you know, something or another announced uh, at Google I.O. Yes, exciting. I'll look for hopefully some Google Assistant updates. Pardon me. Um, it's just small, but Google continues to just get better and better with the Assistant. I mean, we have four different Google Mini speakers, and one of the things I sometimes do is move from upstairs to downstairs, and I'll just say, hey, G, play this on such and such speaker. Anyway, there's some things like that that, that didn't work great that now seem to work great. Con- you know, this is just continuing iteration uh, of improving stuff. So I think that article is saying they're predicting a significant update to Assistant. Um, yeah, maybe, but it's just continuing to get better and better. And when you do that over time, guess what? You end up with some pretty awesome products and I feel like the Google Assistant is is fantastic. I still use Siri to to dictate and to to do a few things to call, you know, in the car with with CarPlay and things like that. But yep, whenever I set up an appointment or anything like that, even though I'm on my iPhone, I'm opening up the Google yeah. Assistant and it's making that making that for me. And I'm playing my music on Spotify from the Google Assistant. So yep, yep. But Google I/O is always a, and they'll always have clever videos, right? We've talked about this on the show. Like watch Apple's you know, videos that they've been doing in their events, especially during the pandemic. They're all, I mean, Apple's always epic as far as being, being, uh, you know, outstanding in terms of the way they use video, but Google is too. And so that'll be something fun to watch as a, um, you know, somebody teaching media literacy and, and creating videos and trying to, to think about, you know, ways to do that effectively. They are pretty masterful at that. And then one last update that that will uh, has maybe a bit, a bit broader impact in schools. Uh, it was reported on the Google Workspace blog, and then ultimately in Chrome Unboxed. Uh, by far, uh, my one of my two favorite websites uh, for Chrome OS news. Google is going to roll out a big update to Google Docs, and the Google Docs update is going to change the rendering away from HTML and towards something called canvas rendering, which is um, uh, uh, Robbie Payne, the, uh, the, the the chief writer over at Chrome Unboxed, says he had to look it up. I had to go look it up, too, and I didn't really understand. Uh, it's, it's obviously m- way more complex, but the idea here is that by doing this canvas rendering, they can not only dramatically speed up the process of of uh, displaying documents, especially large, complex documents like our multiple hundred page uh, note document available at www.edtechsr.com slash links. So it's a document that Wes and I have been working on since uh, 2016 uh, to to dump links into a, a document for the purposes of uh, kind of managing this podcast. Um, but also... Um, it should look more consistent from uh, platform to platform. So the document's going to look uh, a, a, a little cleaner on the screen, but then also look the same whether you're on Mac or, or PC or, or on, on a Chromebook. And the only thing that's being noted both by um, uh, Google and then also noted in the Chrome Unboxed article is that uh, it may break some plugins that access specific data uh, there. And they've already released some technical documentation on how to update your plugins. But I do use several Chrome extensions that do are, are useful to me to modify text in Google Docs, not the least of which is Grammarly, which I pay for the pro uh, version of. I, I like it so much. I also use Text Expander on Chrome OS and then across Macs and PCs. Uh, uh, both are very important to me and are critical. And that's one of the reasons why I love writing um, in Google Docs. It'll be super important to see if this has any impact on uh, on ad blockers. I may, I, I, it really shouldn't, right? Because you're not seeing ads on a Google Doc that you're opening. But anytime I'm reading something about may affect extensions, you know, uh, uBlock Origin is my um, ad blocker of choice. It is just so wonderful to not have to see those ads on YouTube and other places. Uh, it makes a huge instructional difference in the classroom. And it's one of the reasons I'm, you know, 
I would be, I would be fine either way with school. If we were going all iPad, we're not, we're going all Chromebook. Um, anyway, it'll, hopefully that's not going to break, but that is something that Google certainly has its eye on because, you know, if everybody had an ad blocker on that was very effective, you know, that would affect Google's bottom line. And I'm sure ad blockers even now do, uh, do affect what, what Google is, is making and how they're profiting. Yep, absolutely. Okay, that's all I've got on the Google News. Uh, where to next, sir? Well, let's jump down to some fun miscellaneous news. Uh, actually, I think I put some under social media. So this one, I'm sure uh, Peggy might have seen this and it will affect her because she's had a wonderful Nuzzle newsletter. Twitter is killing Nuzzle, and it's okay if you have no idea what this means. This is from Android Police um, on maybe the sixth um, nuzzle is a, a was <laughs> yeah, talking the past tense <clears throat> was a fantastic app. One of my favorite ones, one of my favorite sessions. And I haven't been to a lot of conferences lately, um, but is, is I just started to call it uh, discovering good ideas. And you know, that's, it's a case for Twitter and using Twitter lists and Flipboard. But Nuzzle was one of these things that was fantastic because it leveraged the folks that you followed both on Twitter and on Facebook. And so you could see articles and links that people you choose to follow are sharing. And so it was a neat way to algorithmically crowdsource and filter all the possible information that you could be looking at. And you could see something that, Hey, if I'm following, you know, if these are people I'm following, there's a chance that, you know, this is interesting. Well, it's, it's dead. I noticed a few days ago, it just stopped updating. I was like, I think there's a problem with the app. And sure enough, um, Twitter has bought it and killed it. So this is interesting. I don't know. This, this just happens, right? Big, big tech companies do this. Apple does this and. Facebook does this, and now Twitter's doing it. Uh, I'm sad. Uh, I thought Nuzzle was fantastic, and I would be surprised if that full functionality is available again. But, yes, Peggy says that Nuzzle notified her that was discontinuing their service several weeks ago. See, that that shows you that I don't check all my email that well, doesn't it? Um, so, anyway, there will be other ways to find newsletters, but Peggy says that she's tried the early Twitter solution. It's not nearly as good. So it was just kind of cool because it would curate, you know, top links from people that that you follow and allow you to send those out. And I think you could curate them yourself if you wanted to, wanted to change those. And then here's another one that's just kind of bizarre. Uh, I actually dropped, dropped this in uh, here during the show. This is the Washington Post, which by the way, I have subscribed to now. Um, and the headline is, a beautiful female biker was actually a 50-year-old man using the Face app after he confessed his followers liked him even more. So <clears throat> from a media literacy standpoint, you know, what's the joke about no one can tell if you're a dog on the Internet? Um, they've got a, a headline photo, you know, showing this guy's, um, you know, real face and, and what he looks like and then what his, you know, young female face app transformed version is. So there's just something sign of the times here about uh, not only the fact that you can use an app like that to transform yourself into a completely different looking individual and acquire a large you know following on, on social media, but Hey, it's, it's okay. People are, are, are fine with that. There was, I think it was in that um, PBS frontline special in the age of AI. And it was talking about whether, people would be okay just interacting with robots um, and, and even thinking about like elder citizens, like the elderly and, you know, what the ethics of all that would be. And it's, it's pretty fascinating. Um, and I guess part of the suggestion I heard at that time was that, uh, and th I think this was talking about, if, if not, I think they were Japanese, but it was definitely in, in Asia. Um, anyway, there was, there just seemed to be more acceptance of, you know, knowing no, this was in China. They knew that they were interacting with a robot, but it was fine. And and from a mental health standpoint, they were they were finding themselves you know more well, even though they were interacting with an algorithm and not a human being. Weird, really weird. Thinking about the future. So, Jason, were you devastated? Were you following this this social media you know phenomenon and and shocked to learn that FaceApp was actually the uh, the cause of their ability to appear so young and so attractive. Um, I, 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 this is the first I've heard of this. This is super interesting because I used FaceApp. I, I was entertained by it uh, um, 
but yeah, it, 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 interesting news, I guess, um, uh, I, I'm not surprised by it, I guess, is, is the, what I would say based on my experience with the app itself. All right, and what you want to pick up the the BBC uh, Facebook model? Yeah, yeah. This one is from today's BBC, and I, I read this during lunch today. Um, there is some hearings going on right now um, in the Irish Parliament, and they are looking at at Facebook, uh, like a lot of legislative bodies are right now. And they brought in uh, Isabella Plunkett, who had a, has a job as a Facebook content moderator, and it was her job for eight hours a day to look through things that had been marked either by the logarithm or by users as uh, against Facebook uh, uh, rules, right? And if you think about what ends up on Facebook, the stuff that must violate Facebook rules is probably pretty terrible stuff. But as it turns out, um, uh, it was. And the 26-year-old um, uh, 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 testified today that... Uh, it was her job to look at things marked as extremism, abuse, suicide, exploitation, graphic violence, um, and, and determine if they, you know, legitimately violated the, um, uh, uh, legitimately violated the uh, rules of, of the platform. And she said that, um, uh, it was, it, it's terrible. Uh, uh, she's done the job for two years. She can't do it much longer because it has been disastrous to her mental health. Um, she says that, uh, she worked on a hundred, what, what she referred to as tickets a day. So a hundred of instances, um, that, uh, uh, she was asked to evaluate content based on the rules. And so, you know, that means about every 10 minutes, uh, maybe every six or seven minutes, she's getting a new thing to look at. And for eight hours a day, it was her job to look at terrible stuff. Um, and for some reason, uh, Siri, uh, thought I was talking to it, but, um, uh, and, and she said that, that, uh, it, it, it's just been like, she doesn't think she can do it much longer. Two years is more than enough. And she, uh, they also mentioned during the hearings that some employees are given written contracts that say that you are likely to pick up PTSD from doing this work. And it just tells me that, uh, you know, obviously that's not, Facebook's overall shtick, right? But the fact that so much of this garbage and, and, and terrible, terrible content's being shared on that platform and that it takes, you know, it, it takes a, a large horde of content moderators who are risking their mental health to do it. Um, you know, uh, again, sharing is uh, the sharing platform, the sharing economy, the sharing uh, 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 ability that we've given ourselves is such an extraordinarily powerful tool. You'll never find bigger advocates for that than me and Wes. But the bottom line um, uh, uh, is that, it, you know, it, it comes with a price and that just because you can share um, uh, openly means that some people will use that uh, in a way that is just not meeting the goals broadly we have in humanity. So the fact that Facebook is requiring, and it says some, to sign that disclaimer about PTSD is horrific, unethical, and should be illegal. Um, I have friends that have medically retired from the Air Force, not because they kicked indoors and discharged weapons in Iraq um, in the middle of the night, but because their job as intelligence officers was to look at the footage of that, you know, day after day. And that has a toll on your, on your mind, on your brain. And thankfully they are, you know, compensated and part of the veterans administration system. It's, it's terrible that, you know, Many, many of our soldiers and sailors, uh, do suffer from PTSD, but this is something that is happening, you know, in the, in the course of Facebook's day to day business. It's not Facebook's fault per se that people share this content, but Facebook bears a very important responsibility to addressing this. And I think Mark Zuckerberg has held out the carrot of AI is going to save us and these algorithms are going to take care of it all. It doesn't. You still have to have in many, many cases and far too many cases, you know, people take a look at this. And so I think um, we've, we need to figure out ways to not be overcome and overwhelmed by 
the darkness and and the the terrible that that people share and that is that is out there in the world <clears throat> in past decades and past centuries we've just been more naturally insulated from it because we didn't have a global internet that spread images and video at the speed of light all over the place. So these are really, really difficult questions. And I do not think we should be sacrificing at the altar of, Oh, I really like to see these, you know, cute pictures of dogs and cats, you know, 26 year olds like this young woman who has testified. And I'm glad that the Irish, um, parliament is bringing these things to light and and transparency and learning about these things is an important part and journalism right yay bbc you know we need to have you know strong um support for and 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 for for journalists and journalism journalists pay play a very important role in our societies and you know i'm i'm actually i'm sad to learn this but i'm glad that the irish parliament is doing something and and it, and they're bringing this to light and then hopefully they'll take action you know europe i think is ahead of where we are in the united states with privacy regulation and protection and it's not going to be perfect but we're going to need to walk down this road and not just you know give a blank check to to mark zuckerberg and say yes mark we trust you do whatever you want um you know, it's that's created a dumpster fire that has literally led to deaths in places like Myanmar, and it's it's had a lot of casualties. So thanks for sharing that article. That references, if you haven't watched The Social Dilemma on Netflix, hey, what have you been doing with your time the, the past few months? You know, go watch that, and it will highlight those kinds of issues and why we continue to talk about the tech correction on the show. Speaking of which... Uh, I'll do this one quickly. We just have one tech correction article. This is Ars Technica on May 9th. Why Amy Klobuchar just wrote 600 pages on antitrust. <clears throat> we are almost certainly going to see, this is Wes's prognostication crystal ball, in the next 12 months, some legislation in the United States around tech companies and the issues that we'll call the tech correction. Uh, we have voices on the right and the left. Uh, Klobuchar, who became much higher profile as a result of her candidacy for president, um, has written what appears to be a, a pretty, uh, a, well, a tome of, of ideas um, that is criticizing monopolies and the control that they have, not only the subtitle here, not only over consumers, but also over politics. And so we have things like Facebook, you know, buying Instagram and now controlling even more uh, of what we're able to see and do. And <clears throat> this big opaque cloud of data that's being collected and privacy and, and these different things. So I think, well, based on the article for sure, Klobuchar is wanting to be a catalyst and serve as someone who is an ideological leader for the tech correction and what she is articulating. I think there's like 200 pages of endnotes, so it's a pretty big, pretty big book. I don't know who's going to read the whole thing, but the ideas there are going to be impactful, even if, you know, all of us don't read her book because she's talking about the tech correction. So Dr. Neifer, is this going to push us over the edge? Is Klobuchar the one who will finally move legislation of the tech correction forward. Uh, it, I think so for two reasons. The first one is that she's been very persistent on this issue. She was an early voice when they started dragging uh, uh, CEOs and tech leaders onto Capitol Hill for, for, for questioning. But then the other thing that I think is also critical is that I think Senator Klobuchar also understands the technology better than the typical member of the House or Senate uh, in, in the United States Congress. And uh, the bottom line is that... Uh, we need people that understand the tech to regulate the tech. Uh, we will create terrible, terrible regulatory regimes uh, if we do not have folks in charge that can at least uh, 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 learn about the tech, if not understand it already. And I have every hope that Senator Klobuchar is that person. Awesome. All right. Do we want to do anything else before our geeks? have got about five minutes left. Um, nope. Next time, actually, let me do a very quick Microsoft one, um, and then uh, next time I'd love to talk about uh, Air Tags because the it's so interesting how people are responding to uh, that technology and the, kind of the privacy information there. But Microsoft has announced that uh, their OneDrive app on Android is finally getting casting ability, and the reason why that's important is because I keep thinking about and I. 
and I wish I remember who the speaker was, but um, in early 2000s when the iPod was uh, 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 starting to become a video playing device as much as it was a music playing device, there was a speaker from Discovery Education. I can't remember one of the three or four great speakers that was always on the circuit from Discovery Education, but he did a really wonderful uh, session about the, the, uh, the unlimited VCR, this idea that you could plug in your iPod into a television or projector. Hall, Hall Davidson or, or probably Hall. Actually. Yeah. Now right. to say that I'm yeah. almost certain it was a Hall Davidson presentation. So, um, and he talked about this notion of, and he was obviously you know, helping pitch this uh, to help make Discovery Education video that much more useful. But this notion that you could carry, you know, a, a library in your pocket and plug it into your projector or television and access a video with a few clicks. And now, obviously, that is 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 available in spades in 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 2021 via things like YouTube. But if you're someone that has a video library at home, uh, you've ripped a bunch of DVDs or you have downloadable video clips or you have personal video clips. One of the things I love to do when I travel is to plug in a Chromecast or plug in um, an Apple TV into a hotel television and then use that to cast things uh, to that device. But now OneDrive is getting casting capability on Android. So if you want to put, you know, let's say you rip four or five movies, uh, uh, put them on the cloud, uh, just get on the hotel Wi-Fi. You can stream them then uh, to your Chromecast on your television that's located uh, 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 in your hotel room. So great, great ability in the OneDrive app. All right. Awesome. Well, sir, uh, shall we Geek of the Week it? Let's do it. Um, Mine is a blog post. I hadn't logged in like two months. Not only does Wes forget to post the shows. (laughs) Anyway, I used to blog every day, you know. Times change. Social media, yeah, things happen. But uh, about three weeks ago, I had a chance to connect to some language teachers in the UK, thanks to Joe Dale, who I had never actually seen a picture of or a video of until we connected. And it was like 10 a.m. my time, 3 p.m. in England and or in the UK. And so I shared a presentation called... Uh, lesson ideas and tips for language teachers using Scratch, Minecraft, and more. And so it's about an hour and 12 minutes long, and my slides and the video are available there. And even if you don't teach language, there's some ideas. I really, as I said, enjoyed teaching Spanish. It was fun to teach content, brought not just, you know, computers or technology skills. And, uh, you know, my kids at least had a lot of fun, you know, in Scratch and Minecraft and some other things, you know, using Spanish. So, Anyway, there's probably some good ideas that uh, you can you can take. And if you're not familiar with Scratch, I've had a chance to share Scratch with all of our middle and high school math teachers in the last couple of weeks. And um, really only one of them had ever been introduced to Scratch before. It's just such a powerful platform. There's so many ways that visualizations and animations can be created. The language that underlies all that is math. So anyway, you don't have to be a math teacher or a language teacher to use it. Um, but yeah, that's it. How about you? Uh, I want to share uh, last week's uh, episode of Live from NCCE, which is NCC's once a week uh, Thursday evening live professional development event. It's about 20 minutes long uh, during the school year, uh, uh, ncc.org for future episodes. But I saw an amazing uh, uh, presentation last week from Natasha, Rachel, and Felisa Ford, who have worked on a really great Minecraft lesson called Good Trouble that talks about the civil rights movement, goes all the way back to the Civil War, and it's one of the best implementations of Minecraft I've seen that as a vehicle for teaching other content. Minecraft's an amazing tool, obviously, wonderful K-12 education tool, but it's one of the best implementations in a social studies-like classroom that I have seen. And um, it's about 20 minutes long. It's, It's located on YouTube. Um, but it, it's worth your time if you want to envision what excellent integration of Minecraft looks like in something like a social studies classroom. Plus, the, and this, is, this is a downloadable world that you can download. It includes lesson plans if you wish. Um, uh, but it, it, it's really a wonderful way, I think, to look at social justice issues in the United States um, through, you know, a, a technology that would be popular with kiddos like, like Minecraft. So, uh, ncc.org, and then I have a link to the blog post, blog.ncc.org, that, uh, looks at the archive of that wonderful, wonderful presentation. Awesome. Well, Wes, where can people find you on social media? 
I am W Fryer on Twitter. You can find all the spots I share on westfriar.com slash after. How about you, Dr. Knifer? I am on Twitter at TechSavvyTeach, and I also uh, work uh, uh, blogging a little less, too. Social media uh, also does the same thing to my blogging uh, 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 post persistence as well. Um, uh, blog.ncc.org. Um, uh, but this here is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a once-a-week podcast on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central Time, somewhere in the middle of the night, UTC. We'd love it if you could join us live. We always tweet out the link on our Twitter uh, channel. Uh, EdTechSR is our Twitter channel. You can also find us on YouTube to search for EdTech Situation Room. If you want to download the podcast and listen to it on the go, you can... Find us wherever finer podcasts are aggregated. You can also go to our website, www.edtechsr.com, and download a tiny MP3 to put on your phone or mobile device. And if you want to see any of the links we talk about, www.edtechsr.com slash links. We are thrilled you joined us for this episode of the EdTech Situation Room. We hope you join us next time. Um, if uh, you'd like to join us live in the chat room, Peggy George, our chat room moderator, would love to hang out with you. We bid you a great week. Stay stay safe, stay savvy, and we will see you next time on the Antic Situation Room. Good night. Full speaker points to Dr. Neifer for that (laughs) 2AR.